Can I ask you guys a quick question? How many of you were tempted, tempted to ditch church and go to the beach today? How many, how many were tempted? Just tempted. So there's four honest people in the room. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. You liars. Of course you're tempted. It's beautiful out there. Okay, if you say so. All right, I'll, I'll believe you, Tyrone, because you're bigger than me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we are. Let's, let's uh, begin by reading 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to uh, 13, and then we'll pray and we'll get into it together. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through formal association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat or no better off if we do. But take care, care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the, an idol's temple... Will, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Sorry. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble... I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Let's pray. Father, would you please help us to recognize how Jesus sets us free? Lord, would you help us to recognize the work that you do in us to make us your own? Please, Lord, we pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to know you, to walk with you, and to draw near to you. Please, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Is that coming from that bag? Because that's my bag. Okay. Josh, do me a favor. Take my bag out, just in case it goes off again. Apologies. That's embarrassing. All right. Bob cannot wait to use his new gift card he got from work. It's for the new burger place in town. It's called the Devil's Lair. You can get the, the, the most wickedly good burgers in town at the Devil's Lair. 
And, and he's not just excited about the burgers. Bob's excited because he, he's going to be, with all his work friends are going to be there, and the gift card gives him the ability to invite a couple church friends. And he's going, this is going to be the opportunity I've been praying for to engage with my work friends about Jesus. And so Bob goes to church and he talks to his two friends, Dan and John. And he says, Dan, hey, why don't you come with me to this, 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 uh, this new place in town. We're going to eat some burgers together. It'll be with my friends that aren't Christians. Dan says, that sounds like a great idea. John nods enthusiastically. Yeah, burgers are always good. And then Bob says, here's where we're going, to the devil's lair. Then all of a sudden, Dan looks panicked. And he kind of sheepishly looks over at John, and John looks visibly upset, and he just storms off. And so then Dan says to, to Bob, Bob, what are you thinking? You can't eat burgers at the devil's lair? And did you forget John's story? He's only been a Christian for a year, and a year ago he was worshiping Pagan deities. He was into Wicca and all kinds of pagan worship. What are you thinking? And then Dan storms off. And Bob stands there in stunned silence, having no idea what to do. Can you imagine something like that actually happening? Seriously. Because that's the closest sort of modern parallel that I can think of to what's actually happening in 1 Corinthians. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 1, Paul deals with this issue of, as he says plainly, food offered to idols. And it's not just about the food itself. It's, it is really about what's, what are we free to do and what are we not free to do as Christians. And it's complicated. In fact, it gets really complicated by the fact that, uh, by the fact that you know, Almost all the meat that was in meat markets, almost all the meat that was used in restaurants in first century Corinth would have been connected to the temple. The different temples where they worshipped false gods. And so, so the, 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 the people that would worship these false gods would bring their sacrifice, the sacrifices would be made these false gods. They would then take some of the meat would go to the priests and the people that minister in the temple. The other meat would be given over to the restaurant right next door and that would be sold and then the other stuff would be sold at the market. And so there's a really good chance, if you're anywhere near there, that the meat that you're eating was sacrificed to idols. So the question was, can we eat this stuff? And even more complicated than that was the restaurants, quote-unquote, that were there around the temple. And the meat markets there, those were the places of social engagement for first century Corinthians. You go to the, the, the market and you buy meats and veg and bread and all kinds of different supplies that you would need and you have conversation. You find about the latest news and the politics. It's where you engage with culture. When there's a family celebration, you go to the restaurants and you celebrate whatever thing you're celebrating. Daughter got engaged. My son finally passed the whatever the bar exam would be in first century Corinth. You go and you celebrate these things. Trade guilds, you know, the, the, these kind of grouping of, of people who tradesmen together, when they had meetings, they almost always had these meetings in this area, the, the restaurants around the temple. So what does this mean? It's not just about eating meat. It's about can we, as first century Christians, Corinthian Christians, can we now be involved in these things? And this is the question that Paul wants to deal with over the next three or four sessions that we're going to have in Corinthians. And here's what's really interesting about this. Is if you remember a couple weeks back when we were talking about 
the issue of freedom and sexuality. We, we quoted from some verses in Acts chapter 15, if you remember this, talking about this letter that was written by the, the first Jesus followers to try to determine what can non-Jewish followers of Jesus, what parts of the law do they, do they need to keep? And, of course, they said, you need to abstain from sexual morality. But what else did they say? They said, that you may abstain, it should be on the screen, that you may abstain from what was, has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep these things, you will do well. Wasn't that kind of plain? Why does Paul need three chapters to talk about this? Why can't he just say, no, you can't. You can't eat food sacrificed to idols. He will in some ways say as much when we get to chapter 10, but I don't want to steal Johnny's thunder. But what he wants to do here is he wants to deal with something more than just the actions of eating at a restaurant or in a home or near a temple Uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. He wants to deal with motives. Because God is more interested in why we do something than what we do. Did you hear what I said? God's more interested in why we do something than what we do. Now, does this mean that you have to have a perfect motive before you do the right thing? No, it does not mean that. But here's what it does mean. God's not just interested in seeing your actions change. He wants to see your heart change. Specifically, as we're going to see, he wants us to learn to love. Now, I wonder, can anyone here tell me what the two great commandments are? First and then one second. Anyone think they can? You don't have to say it out loud. Just raise your hand if you think you know what the two great commandments are. Raise them high. Be bold. Be strong. The Lord God is with you. Okay? So a good, about half of you guys think you, you know what those are, right? Let's see if you're right. The first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second one is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Did you guys know those ones? Yeah. Now you know the answer if I ask that again. Now everyone can raise their hand next time. This is really the, the lens by which we need to view all of our action, all of our relationships. So this is what Paul's going to do. He's not going to shortcut and say, okay, here's the rule. We all want the rule. He's going to know here's the motive. Here's where our heart needs to be in this. So I'm going to give you two main things. It should be in your notes. The first is this. Paul prioritizes True love for the true God. Look what he says in verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, he says, we know that all possess knowledge. In some of your versions, like the e, my version, the ESV, has that in, in quotation marks. And it was probably one of these proverbs that the Corinthians liked to use. One of these kind of, not proverbs from the scripture, but one of their kind of cultural sayings. We know all have knowledge. And Paul says really plainly here, this knowledge puffs up. But what does he contrast that love, that, that knowledge with? Love. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And then he says in verse 2 really clearly, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. I used to be really intimidated with, uh, by people who had postgraduate degrees. I mean, really intimidated. I don't just mean like postgraduate degrees in theology. I, I, I actually felt a little bit cocky, like I could kind of keep up with those guys. But it was the guys who had postgraduate degrees in other things, other disciplines that I had knew nothing about. And then we started getting a lot of these guys coming to Servant Church. You know what I found out? They know nothing except about this much about one thing. And they'd be the first people to say it. Because the more you study anything, the more you know what you don't 
No. That's probably the heartiest amen I've gotten in a long time. That's good. And, and this is what happens. The Corinthians were obsessed with wisdom and knowledge. And some of the knowledge we're going to see today was actually correct. But what they're missing often was love. See, here's the reality. Humble love trumps ignorant knowledge every time. Every time. Now, Paul's not devaluing knowledge. Okay, knowledge is an important thing. We wouldn't take as much time teaching the Bible if we didn't think knowing what God says is important. But the knowledge that he's talking about here isn't just a, a head knowledge either. It's a relational knowledge. And it's important that we recognize that a relational knowledge can't be separated from love. See, the, the truth is, real love is not dependent upon knowledge, but humble dependence upon knowing God leads to love. If you're content with just knowledge, try that in a dating relationship. Can you imagine going on a date, sitting down with your date and saying, okay, thanks for being here. I'd like to know now, uh, give me some facts about yourself. When were you born? Uh, can I see you? Look at me for a second. Okay, eyes are brown, kind of squinty, but okay. Um, hair color, several. Um, <laughs> What's your favorite uh, ice cream? Doesn't like ice cream? We're done with this interview. Now imagine seriously, if you treated a date like an interview, no one would do that. Because we don't just want information. The information we want is we want to know the person. And if we want to know the person, we want to know the person so we can decide, do I want to love this person? And so when it comes to knowledge and information, we need to understand what it is that God wants to do. Later on, in 1 Corinthians 13, when the great love chapter, Paul will say something along these lines, if I have all knowledge but have not love, I am nothing. Now, what's interesting about this as well is what Paul says in verse 3. Notice he says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, if anybody knows that God loves him. Now, we emphasize a lot, don't we, that, that what matters most is that you know that God loves you. And we do for good reason. We'll talk about more of that as we, as we go along. But, but there's a, there's a, it's, it's a really important thing to, to recognize what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, listen, God knows who loves him. Now, this is not meant to be something that makes you worry. <gasps> God knows. He knows I don't really love him with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength. He knows. Yes, and he loves you still. But God knows, listen, when he's doing a work in us, calling us to turn to him, calling us to trust that he loves us, he's doing a work in us that says, God, I want to love you back. And I can't love you unless I know you love me. See, this is not about a reason to worry. It's about a motivation for sincerity. To not fake it to make it, but to faith it to make it. To say, Lord, i got to trust that you actually love me or I'm never going to love you in return. But this, listen, this is where every other issue begins and ends. It ends with, 
do I know that I'm loved? Do I, maybe I should say it better. Do I believe that I'm loved? Because the scripture is really clear that you are. Do I believe that I'm loved? And do I want to, one, to love the one who's loved me supremely? That's always the issue. And so when Paul says God knows those who love him, he repeats this phrase in other places. I didn't write it down. It won't be on the screen. But you can look in, one, in Galatians chapter 4. talks about this. 2, Peter, 2 Timothy chapter 2 talks about this. That phrase, known by God. It's this, this picture of God saying, you are mine. I know you. I know you. God knows who loves him. Those who love him are those who, love, uh, who know they're loved by him. This is how John says it in 1 John chapter 4. He says, if anyone does not know God, uh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, if anyone, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word propitiation just means the sacrifice that God requires. This is what God does. He says, listen, to know me is to love me. This is what God says. And so really, we do need to pause a second to say, if you have no love for God, if your thought of God is of a taskmaster, that if you don't please, you're toast. You're going to be cast into hell. If that's your view of God, you're seeing God the wrong way. God's not a taskmaster. He's a good, good father, as we sing today. That's who he is. And though we don't deserve it, through the death of his son, through the resurrection of his son, through the work of his spirit, he adopts us into his family. He's a good, good father. This is why we're exhorted by Paul in Romans chapter 12 to, say, to do this. Listen, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let's love be genuine. Do you know you can tell God, God, I know I should love you more, but I don't. So I want to, God, say, first of all, forgive me because you're worthy of all my love. And I want to say, Lord, would you continue to change me so I can learn to love you as you are worthy? God says, I know that guy. I recognize that. I know that heart. That's the heart I'm changing. You see, Paul says this is where it all begins. He prioritizes a genuine love or true love for the true God. In fact, he, he, Paul continues to kind of use their arguments against them in verse 4. Look at what he says in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of the food offered to idols, we know that, and here, notice again it's in quotations, at least if you have the ESV, an idol it has no real existence. The idea there is that uh, an idol is just that. It's just something that was made by man's hands. He says, and that we also know, also in quotations, that there is no God but one. That's what the scripture clearly says. We have one God. He says, verse 5, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. In other words, what he's trying to say pretty plainly is, many gods are worshipped, but only one is worthy. Any idol that you'd be tempted to worthy isn't going to transform you and give you a heart of love. Now, 
This is kind of what the Corinthians would have said. Yeah, we get this, Paul, of course. That's our whole point. The idols mean nothing. So why are you making a big deal about meat? But here's what Paul's doing. He's not, first of all, he's not denying that there's actually a demonic influence behind idols. Again, that's chapter 10. But what he is doing, he's saying, listen, he's affirming their idea that God is so above any false god that we create or any kind of a fallen angel that God created then rebelled and is now a demon. He's bigger than that. The Corinthians were affirming that, and Paul's saying, yeah, I agree. Absolutely, it's true. And it's important. Because if we say there's one God who is above all, that is the God that we should seek to please. That's the point. You following me? Paul's saying, okay, if you, if you are so sure there's one God over all these false gods, are you seeking to please Him? Are you seeking to love Him? Is that your motivation? Then he says this in verse 6. Paul writes in verse 6, he says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father. Did you notice this language when I read it the first time? Notice how that language parallels, right? There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom are all things and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. See the parallels there? He uses almost identical language to talk about our relationship to the Father and our relationship to Jesus. The only difference is the preposition. And there's, there's some profound things that we could pull out of those prepositions. But the main point that Paul is saying, as he's already affirmed, there's one God, Father, Son, and as he indicates later, Spirit. And this one God, listen, is both creator, all things come from him, and redeemer, redeemer, all things are going to be for him. He's both those things. And so the point that Paul's making here is, listen, in prioritizing a true love for the true God, we identify God as the one who made us and therefore owns us, and the one who redeems us and therefore owns us again. I, I, I've tried so many times to find the original version of the gingerbread man story. Do you guys know that story? You can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man. And the way the original story ends is the baker catches the gingerbread man and says, I've made you, and now I've bought you, and you belong to me. And it's a picture of what Christ has done for us. Now, all the versions are twisted and weird, and this is kind of what happens to children's literature. But originally, it was meant to be an allegory of what Christ has done for us. He's created us, and he's redeemed us. This is Paul's point. Paul's saying, listen... Your first priority, before we even get into the, 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 the final answer about whether you can eat at the devil's lair, is really about, do you love God? Is your priority, God, I want to love you. I want to be pleasing to the one who so loves me. This is meant to be our priority with every relationship and with every question. First thing we should ask ourselves. God, do I love you? Am I wanting what's going to be pleasing to you? And do I love you because you first loved me? Then he gets into the second bit, okay? Oh, wait, I forgot. There's something I'm supposed to read. 1 John chapter 5, listen to this. 
Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whatever has been born, or whoever has been born of him. That is, we love all our brothers and sisters. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Do you see the order? We're loved by God, and because we're loved by God, we love what, who God loves, which specifically is other believers. And how do we love specifically other believers? We say, God, whatever you say goes, we obey you. Can you see how that works? Can you see why loving God has to be the priority? See, as important it is for us to love others, if we don't love God, we don't love others. That's Paul's point. Paul's point is not just to have a knowledge that says, yeah, I can do this, or no, I can't do this. It's to answer the most important question, which is whatever I know or don't know or don't understand, do I know that I'm loved by God and I need to love him as a priority and let my relationship with other people flow from that? So, so Paul, he's calling the Corinthians to let the love of God be their motivation for deciding whether or not they can eat food sacrificed to idols. Let that be your motivation, he's calling them to. And this brings us to the second bit. Verses 7 to 13, where Paul commands a willing love for a weaker brother. Look at verse 7. However, Paul says, not all possess this knowledge. Now, isn't this interesting? Because didn't Paul quote their proverb in verse 1? All of us possess this knowledge. And in, in a sense, kind of agree, okay, there's a certain knowledge that is true. But then he comes back here in verse 7 to say, well, the truth is not everyone understands this. Not everyone recognizes how weak idols are and how strong God is. And the the inference here is not every believer gets that. That's the inference here. So he says in verse 1, or verse 7, sorry, but some through former association with idols, in other words, they used to be idol worshipers. Loads of the Corinthian Christians were idol worshipers before they became Christians. He says, so when they, because of their former association with idols, they ate food as really offered to an idol. In other words, when they are eating the food, they're thinking, oh, I'm eating what's meant to worship this false god. So they think they're worshiping a false god. He's saying, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now, Paul's really clear, right? Food doesn't commend us to God. So if we eat, we're not better off. If we don't eat, we're not better off. That's the point, Okay. But what he's saying here is really important because Paul wants the Corinthians to recognize the difference between perception and reality. What do I mean by that? Perception is what we think is true. Reality is what really is true. Now, we tend to kind of separate truth and reality, don't we? We say truth is kind of what we feel or what we think. We make truth to be perception, and then we think perception is accurate way to find truth. We kind of put those things together, but they're actually separate. Perception is what we think is true. Reality is what actually is true. Now, why is this important? Well, because the most important reality here is not about the food. It's about the people's relationship to Christ. How much do you need to know to know that God loves you? Do you have to have a PhD? How about just an undergrad degree in theology? You can be a child. Amen, babe. For the record, babe is my wife, just to be clear. (laughs) Even a child can understand the gospel. 
Even a child can know that they're loved by God. Why is this important? Because the, the reality is that, that all Corinthians, both those who perceive themselves to be strong or wise or knowing, and those who perceive themselves to be strong and are actually weak and don't know, whoever they are, what they need to be set on is the reality that they're loved by God and what he says is the most important thing, that they learn to treat each other the way they've been treated. But here, here's the other thing. He, he talks about, he uses kind of two, two words to describe a conscience. He talks about a weak conscience, he talks about a defiled conscience. What does that actually mean? It's important that we, we get our head around this a little bit. A weak conscience would be, a con- conscience is, is, is a mysterious idea. In our modern Western thinking, we think of conscience as how we know what's right or wrong. And, and that's included in it, but the, the word literally means with knowledge. Uh, the idea of conscience, probably the best idea we can come up with conscience is your conscience is kind of like a window where the light of what is right and wrong, sort of things that we can know just about everyday life and about what we learn, the light of right and wrong gets into your heart. And that can be the light of creation, that there's kind of certain things we can know about who God is through creation that can get into our conscience so we know, okay, there's got to be a creator because creation's way too diverse and too complex to be just an accident. Or there's the light of law, God's law, that shines into our conscience and says you're either guilty or not guilty. By the way, we're all guilty. And there's, then there's the light of the gospel that kind of shines into our hearts and says, okay, this is, this is uh, how I know that God loves me and how I know that I can be made right with him. So our conscience is kind of that window where that light comes through. A weak conscience is a conscience that is, has the shade drawn. They just, they just kind of maybe peek out the curtains because they're afraid. They're afraid of what might come in. They feel comfortable with what's inside and they're afraid of what else might come in. That's a weak conscience. In this context with Corinthians, a weak conscience is probably people who don't recognize the freedom they actually have in Christ. They don't recognize how they are accepted in the beloved. They don't, they don't recognize how secure their position is with Jesus. That's probably some of the issues there. A defiled conscience is different. A defiled conscience is when you chuck mud and muck and dung on the window. When you throw it on your own window and then you can't see out, you think, I've done this to myself. That's the difference. Now, 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 with that in mind, think about what Paul says here again. Paul says, notice, uh, in verse 7, Paul says, so, so the, the, the person who used to be an idol worshiper sees you eating. He eats food offered to an idol. And their conscience that was weak, like, oh, I'm afraid to see. They go, well, gosh, that guy can do it. I can do it. I don't care if it's to an idol. I want that devil's lair burger too. And chucks filth onto their own conscience. And feels like that's it. Christ must be done with me. See, this is important. Because what Paul's wanting these guys to see is, listen, he's wanting to see, listen, that, that if you don't recognize how this works, you're going to cause serious damage to people. Look at how he continues in verse 9. He says, but take care that this right, some of your versions say liberty, this right of yours 
does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge, sees you who have knowledge eat in the temple, as I just referred to, he will be encouraged, will he, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food offered to idol? And so by your, your knowledge, thinking, oh, I can eat this, the weak person is destroyed for whom Christ died. In other words, they get to this point where they're just like, okay, I'm condemned, I've sinned against Christ, there's no other salvation for me. Can you imagine coming to church one morning and talking about how much you enjoyed your time in the pub the night before? And you laugh about how you were just on the border of being tipsy. Just before I crossed the line, I stopped. And a new believer comes and he, they, they, in, near the conversation and they overhear that. But this new believer has a problem with alcohol. They don't know how to have self-control. They think, well, okay, I guess Christians can do this. So they go to the pub. They don't just have one. They just have two. They don't really know what that self-control is. And as they have it and they begin to feel a little bit tipsy, they begin to feel convicted, I shouldn't be doing this. And they think, it's not fair. If they can do it, I can do it. And then they do it and they get drunk and they feel like, that's it, I'm condemned. And they go, I can't go back to church. There's no way I'll be accepted. I'm, not, I'm done. And they walk away. Now, all of us are probably thinking in that scenario, yeah, but let's go chase after him. Let's go tell him about the grace of God. And we absolutely should. But can you see the potential damage that can be done there? I'm not talking that, saying that all of us need to be teetotalers. I'm not a teetotaler. What I'm talking about here is the reality of we have to think about how our actions impact people who are less developed in their conscience. That's part of what Paul's getting at here. You see, here's the reality. One man's freedom is another man's destruction. Paul talks about this, and he talks about this again in the book of Romans, a very similar issue in the book of Romans. He says this in Romans 14. He says, for whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, I often hear this quote about like people taking a step in the mission field or making a big decision in life. It's not faith, it's sin. I've got to believe this is what God is or I can't step forward. That might be an application, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about these kind of conscience issues or quote-unquote freedom issues that if we think, well, if they have freedom to do it, I have freedom to do it. So you do the same thing and what ends up happening, you condemn yourself and you try to push it away. I feel guilty, but I don't care if I feel guilty. I'm going to do it anyway. And that by itself is, guess what? Rebellion against God. It doesn't matter if someone else seems to know that they can get away with it. If you can't get away with it, you can't do it. So you who think you can get away with it, if you're encouraging someone else to do it, you may be encouraging them to actually sin. Are you following me? I'm really glad that we have a, a good turnout today on this beautiful day when everyone was tempted to go to the beach or tempted to lie about it. Because that might have been the analogy I used instead of drinking. You might think it's no big deal to ditch church and go, go, go to the beach instead, but what about that new believer who, who's being encouraged, man, be in fellowship, no Christians, hear the word of God, and they go, they find out the next week that you guys just bailed because you thought, ah, the beach is fine. 
I can't point you to a law that says you should be in church every Sunday. But can you see how, how our behavior, when it just comes to, what am I free to do? How can it easily become lovelessness? Instead of, God, I want to love you, what would you have me do? And I know what you have me, you'd have me do primarily is to love those you love. Can you see how this works? In fact, Paul uses really strong language in, in verse 12. Let's, let's not... Let's not dole the sword here. Let's, let's let God deal with our hearts. Paul says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Wow. You're not just stumbling. We use that language kind of lightly. Though. Yeah, someone stumbled, you know, but I, I feel bad about that. But they'll, they'll grow. We all stumble. It's fine. Now, Paul's saying you sin against Christ when you cause your brother to stumble. I say this as somebody who's stumbled people in really horrible ways. As a pastor, I've stumbled people. I've, 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 I've especially sinned with my mouth, saying things I shouldn't say in ways I shouldn't say them. And in doing so, I've sinned against Christ. And I had to say, God, forgive me. I defiled their conscience, and in doing so, I also defiled mine. Forgive me. Cleanse me from that. And he closes off this section, this chapter, in verse 13, by saying this, Therefore, here's his conclusion. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is not a, a New Testament dictate for veganism. Nothing wrong being a vegan or a vegetarian. There really isn't. For many people, it could be healthier and wiser. There's some good arguments about eating less meat, maybe being better from the environment. I don't know. I'm not an environmentalist, but I'm just saying nothing wrong with it. But it doesn't make you more spiritual. But Paul's saying what does make you more spiritual or it does make you more mature is to be willing to sacrifice to benefit the weaker brother. How does this work? Let's go back to Bob, Dan, and John. All who should be mad at their parents for having such simple names. Bob was right to think that the burgers from the devil's lair could have been a great opportunity to share Jesus with his work friends. He was right. But he failed to lovingly consider John's conscience, the new believer that he invited who had been involved in pagan stuff. John was right that he should not be involved in occult things. But he failed to see that he actually has a freedom from the occult through Jesus. And he doesn't have to be afraid of a stupid restaurant called the Devil's Lair. Dan was right that John needed to be protected from such situations as a new believer. But he failed to see Bob's heart to reach out to his work friends for Jesus. See, here's the reality. We all fail to love God and to love one another. All of us. This is why Paul also writes stuff like this. We all fail, but Jesus doesn't. See, where we haven't loved God as the priority, Jesus always did. And when we fail to sacrifice to benefit other people, Jesus always did. 
That's why our hope's in him and not in ourselves. So what do we take away from this? What we take away from this is we say, okay, Lord, we really do want to prioritize loving you. We want to learn to love you and let that motivate every relationship and every circumstance we find ourselves in. And you know what happens? When we begin to say, God, I want to love you, we might land at different places in different situations. We might be Dan once and Bob another time. But because we're wanting to love God, we're going, okay, how is this, how in doing this, how is this going to affect those, that, those whom God loves? How do I do this? See, if I was Bob, what I probably would have done is not, is in nature, I thought, who could handle eating in a place like that and not be stumbled? Who do I know isn't going to be stumbled by occult things, knows that, that, that they're rubbish and that the enemy's defeated and would be happy to engage at, at, with me and my, un, my, my not yet Christian friends and ask them, not just as buddies who like a good burger. And, and if I was, if I was Dan, I would have said, I hope I would have said, Bob, oh, your heart's in the right place, buddy, but I'll talk to you in a minute. Just be praying right now. I'm going to go chase down John. And I'm going to go and talk to John and say, John, Bob's wanting to do a good thing and just probably forgot what your background was. So it's right that you don't go to this thing, but it's also okay that Bob does. And if I was John, I hope what I would do is I would say, you're right, Dan. And I'll pray for you guys, but I just, I can't be in a place like that. No, you're right. You can't be in a place like that. See, if, if Bob and Dan and John would all learn to love God first, they could come to different conclusions because they're at different places and bring glory to God and love everyone involved. Can you see where that has to work this way? Let's pray that we become the kind of people to learn to prioritize a love for God. Let's pray that we become the kind of people that really want to love people this way. Because the people that are still eating at the devil's lair out there that have never came into our church, they need people who love Jesus to go sit with them and tell them about Jesus. And if we can't love each other, we got nothing to say to them. Let's let the Lord do this in us. Amen? Father, I pray that you would help us to be these kinds of people. Grow us by your spirit this direction. Lord, we really want to be those that learn to prioritize loving you and learn to love our weaker brothers. Lord, we really want to see ourselves as free to love. So we pray that you do this for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's kids say, amen. amen.